May that song be true. Help us to be light and salt, not just in the sense of to each other or, or that way we can feel good, but truly be the city on the hill, especially in these times where you are needed, that people can see who you are, can see a life redeemed, can see the quality of eternal life and go, I want that, I need that, not for our glory and not for our actions, but for yours, God. May the world know, may each other know, and may all people know who we are by our love, which is of your love. Fill this spirit, fill this sermon, God. Speak through me or in spite of me. May your spirit be present in everyone listening as I speak your words, at least I pray. Thank you for this time. And Lord, I just pray that as we pause for just a few seconds, that we can focus our hearts and minds, Holy Spirit, renew our hearts, and turn our thoughts towards you and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are times where you've done something a thousand times and you still, for some reason, you feel a little bit off. You still feel a little bit awkward and you just still feel a little bit distracted. For example, I've been preaching for a while and I'm fairly comfortable preaching except I forgot a belt this morning. So I am constantly terrified my pants are going to fall down. Now, I don't think they will. But it's that feeling of insecurity, you know? It's just like, I don't, I, I kind of just want to sit right here and just like, and it's just a, disconcerting. What? <laughs> I, it's not just me sharing because, I mean, I'm, I'm letting you into my world in a moment now, but it's interesting how often when it comes to love, it's also kind of the same thing. We are familiar with love. Most of us have someone we love in our life, whether it's a parent or whether it's a spouse or whether it's um, a family member and such. But at the same time, we can do something that is so familiar, but yet we can feel so disconcerted and feel so awkward and so off with it, depending on what else is going on, depending on what's in our minds, depending on what's going on in our life, depending on maybe who it is. And maybe that's a bit of a stretch of a segue, but I think it's true. There are I, I love my wife dearly. I love my family dearly. I have a good relationship with my, with my family of origin. And yet, when it comes to loving other people, I think I'd rather preach a sermon with my pants down. Just because it seems so hard. And the question that I dealt with this week as I was preparing this sermon is why is that? And why, specifically, why that's not really an option? Last week, if uh, you weren't here, just as by way of review, we looked at Deuteronomy 6, uh, 1 through 9, specifically verse 4, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. We talked about how this is the Shema. This is the base prayer of all Jewish people. They would say it at least once a day, if not twice a day. And this is the base, uh, 
basic foundation of relationship, of, of, of worship, of everything for a Jew. And it all has to do with the love of God. And yesterday, last week, we talked about what the word love means, about how it's not just a feeling. It also has to do with actions. Feelings are actually in there, and God actually talks about his affection for his people. And we talked about how God's love in its entirety of its description, which is in essence the entire Old Testament, God's love is the very foundation for what then Jesus says is the greatest commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If we don't understand what God's love is as defined by the Old Testament, we don't understand what love is. And it's comprehensive, and it's very big, but also it's very specific. We talked about how this is what Jesus is talking about when he comes to saying the greatest commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we talked about how there are five elements, and there are probably more, but we focus on five elements of what God's love is in the Old Testament. We talked about how it's covenantal, about how it's not based on just a whim or a fancy or even something like a promise. Abraham made the covenant in Genesis 15. They split several animals, as a matter of fact, and Abraham walked through there, God in a smoking pot, a literal smoking pot, Got to say that in Oregon. A literal smoking pot. Uh, walk through the animals as well. And Abraham's vision is basically signifying that I'm taking this promise, this covenant so seriously that if I break it, may what happened to me be the same as what happened to the animals. May I be split in two, may I be killed. Basically, that's what the covenant is. It's something much deeper than a promise or or even... It, it, it basically, God is saying, may I, we can't do this with God, but he's basically saying, may I die if I break my promise. And that's what Abraham is committing to, too, when it comes to a covenant. Talk about how God's love is effective, not a, how it affects you, per se, but it's affectionate. People who know, people who you love ought to know you love them. God's love has presence. All through the Old Testament, God is with his people, constantly with his people, and never abandons them. Jesus tabernacled to his people. God's love means that he's with his people. God's love is advocacy, taking someone and speaking into their lives, not just whenever they are down and out, but whenever they need to be spoken into to bring them from where they are to who they could be in Christ, which leads us to our last one, is direction, transformation. Who are you being loved towards, and who are you loving towards, in a sense? It's a little bit of an odd language, but in a sense, you're being, when you're loved by someone, their love is pushing you a certain way. God's love is always going to be pushing you towards himself, his character, his characteristics, his love, his life. And Satan will always do the opposite. We talked about how these are five base foundational things describing God's love that make up what Jesus says you shall love. And last week, in essence, talked about how, yes, God does this with us, but yet we also have these with God and therefore each other. And that transitions into today. The best definition of love currently, and I even said this last week, if, you want, if someone ever asks you, what is love, say, go read the Gospels. Christ is the ultimate definition of what love is, both God's love and the ultimate definition of what human love is, not just the fact that he came and he died. So many times we look at, we talk about Jesus, and we always we go his birth, death, and resurrection. What's in the middle, his whole ministry, is what love is too. We need to know that in order to truly understand what love is as well. The thing is about Jesus, and this transitions finally into our points today. The thing is about Jesus is that the love God edict, 
from Deuteronomy 6. There we go. This was common among almost every religion. Maybe not necessarily the word love, but in some way, shape, or form to respect, to revere, to honor, yes, even to love the little g, God. It was fairly common. You'll find in almost every religion you are supposed to love, you're supposed to honor, you're supposed to respect, you're supposed to fear, you're supposed to follow the head, whoever the religion is. But what Jesus does when asked, what is the greatest command? He says, love God with all your heart and mind, to be expected, but then he also elevates an and. And love others. This is one of the very unique things about Christianity. Now, there are other religions that teach that talking about others and doing well to others is, is integral. But almost no other religion that I know actually places loving others almost on the same level, basically on the same level, as loving God. What does this mean? It may seem obvious, what does that mean? But what does it really mean? And why does it matter that Jesus puts loving others on the same level as loving God. It's interesting. There are 613 commandments. Isaiah reduced them to about 11. Micah reduced them to 3. You would think that Jesus could reduce them to 1, but he reduces them to 2 because they're just as important and they're equal in opposite sides of a coin. When it comes to loving God, We know about this, at least I hope we do. And there are many things that we do to try to show that love. We come and worship, we give. Have we ever thought about, and this is maybe going to hit some of you in a weird way, have we ever thought about how sometimes we can love God to the point of excluding loving others? Let me rephrase that for a second. Have any of us ever been guilty of loving God so much that by doing that we are guilty of not really loving those around us? I have a couple ideas, but I actually want to give you a chance to think about this for a second. With those who you're around, and even if you don't think this is possible, explore it for a second. And those at home, with your family, with your friends, with your catfish. Catfish? If you have a catfish you talk to as a pet, I mean, more better on you, but still. To your cat or to your fish, talk about this, get with you a God. I want you to take two minutes, and I actually would like you to discuss, is it even possible? Are we guilty? What do you think of this statement? How do we sometimes, if we do, love God to the exclusion of loving our neighbors and others? with your neighbors around you, with your families, with your spouse, at home, wherever you're with. Take two minutes, actually, real quick, and just discuss this for a little bit. And, uh, and I actually will take some feedback from those who are in the room if you want to share about what you come up with before I go off on my own. Take two minutes here. All righty. Out of curiosity, if anyone's willing to share in the room, did you come up with anything that you're willing to share? <laughs> yes. Yes. 
So studying, studying a scripture in such detail but never going out to practice it. So knowledge over actually application and implementation. Anyone else? That's a good one. Thank you. One of the more innocuous ones that I had is, you know, there's a visitor at church and they're in your pew and you come up and say, you know, I love you, God loves you, but you can worship God from over there. Obviously, Ryan and I were talking about some of the obvious ones, too, about how if you're in such a hurry to get to worship, for example, and you see someone stuck on the side of the street and you decide, I need, I'll be late for church if I help, missing the obvious. But there are some other things, too. Gossip, talking about people at church to their, in a negative sense when they're not there. Calling out sin in such a way that repels people from God? Is that really loving them? If you're, by nature of explaining who God is, saying they want nothing to do with them? Now, I know that's not always the case. Some people will do that anyway. But do we sometimes do that? Are so adamant about calling out sin that we miss the heart behind it? The Pharisees. I bring this up because this is exactly what Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are guilty of all the time. The Pharisees had loving God down, yes, in a legalistic way, to a T. They even had it down to the point of, I can love God with exactly how many steps before it's counted as work on the Sabbath. But they missed every aspect of the principles behind loving God and how that applies to the people around them. I bring this up today, not to go into great detail about it, but just to say that this is not limited to the Pharisees in the biblical sense, but sometimes the modern church, you and I, we do this too. We place loving God at such a high level that we miss how to love other people around us. So what does that look like? Well, it's interesting, Jesus was a Jew. This, I think we sometimes forget, but it's worth reminding ourselves. And so he would have been familiar with all of the Jewish sacred prayers that every Jew is familiar with. And there is a sacred prayer it's called the Sanctification. It was actually one that the Jews would say every day. It actually got uh, turned more into a mourning prayer uh, when someone had passed. But Jesus would have been very familiar with this. And it reads exactly like this. Glorified and sanctified. This Kaddish is the pronunciation. Glorified and sanctified be God's great name throughout the world, which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and during your days within the life of the entire house of Israel speedily and soon, and say, Amen. May his great name be blessed forever and to all eternity. And actually, there's another to say, Amen, after that. This was said often. Every Jew would have been familiar with this. What's interesting is, does this remind you of any one of Jesus' prayers? Jesus seems like he based the Lord's Prayer, what Ryan read, very much off of the Kaddish. You see, it's interesting, whenever he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he updated and amended the Shema, which was the foundation of all of Jewish worship, daily worship, and he added, loving your neighbor is just as important as loving God. Jesus seems to be doing this as well, with the Kaddish, when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. Look at some of the similarities here. It starts out, glorified and sanctified be God's great name. Father, hallowed be your name. May you establish his kingdom in your lifetime. Your kingdom come. May his great name be blessed forever and to all eternity. But there are some interesting differences here. 
And Jesus updates, and the reason I bring this up is not to just teach you about Jewish prayers, but the fact that this is what permeated Judaism at this time. And so this is Jesus fulfilling, making full the old covenant and everything that came along with it up into his new covenant. Notice what's also missing. <clears throat> There's more to this prayer, obviously, but notice what's missing. That is very obvious here. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sin, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. What is the Kaddish very heavy on? Glory, sanctification, your name, your name, your name, his great name. Talking about God in the third person. Talking about God as someone who is great and powerful. What's the first thing that Jesus starts out with in the Lord's Prayer? As we know very well, Father. Immediately changing how you approach God. He sanctifies, not just magnifies God's name. He says, one day may the kingdom come. He says, your kingdom is here on earth as it is in heaven. But then he adds something here. Instead of making it all about a God-focused love, a God-focused action, what God is about to do, he makes a very, very clear point in saying, give us, each of us, you and me, God, our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Jesus is being consistent here with his ethos of his greatest commandment. It's not just about loving God, because you can pray, and you can act, and you can live out, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You can do that on your own. Understand. But when it says give us our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, and lead us not to temptation. We do something now which we cannot do on our own. By virtue of the prayer, we are acknowledging not only the importance of community, but our role in that community, and the fact that our role, like God, is to help each of this happen with each other. The Kaddish of Jesus is about turning something which is solely God-focused into a God-and-others-focus. Notice what he says here. May your name be established, but then give us our daily bread. May your kingdom come, forgive our sins. May your will be done, lead us not to temptation. Notice the parallels here of the Lord's Prayer. We can talk about the Lord's Prayer for eons people have. May your name be hallowed. May your name be sanctified. May your name be glorified because of the name and because of who you are. You can give us our daily bread. May your kingdom come. What is the benefit? What is the, the signal of the fact that your kingdom has come? That sins are forgiven. May your will be done on earth. What is your will? That we act like you and your son, which naturally leads us out of temptation. Not only is Jesus, in essence, fulfilling the Old Testament God's mission in the prayer, but he's also saying, and we do this not on our own and not simply by loving God, but doing this as a community, as a body, as something which not just happens with us, not just happens to God to us, but something we do together and something that we are just involved with as God is. Put it another way, the Shema of Judaism was love God, 
by following Torah, and this is right from the Scoffic Knife. Just I'll throw that out there as well. I don't have I don't think I have it on here. Shema of Judaism is loving God by following the Torah. The Shema of, of the Kaddish of Judaism is petition for God's glory. Good things, very good things, needed things. But look how Jesus updates it. The Shema of Jesus is love God by following Jesus and love others. The Kaddish of Jesus is what? Petition for Allah's glory and what? Petition for others. I say all this to say, I, I, don't, I hope I'm not teaching you anything new. Maybe in the Kaddish. I hope that you can see and understand and obviously be aware of the fact that Jesus is heavily love God and others focused. But I want you to see is just how intrinsic both things are. You see, love others, according to Jesus, according to the Shema, according to the Kaddish, according to the Lord's Prayer, loving others means it's a both and or neither. What I mean by that is that by your love for God and God's love for you, by, for, and with that you love others, and by, for, and with your love for others is what you love God with. If you break either one, you're not completing the cycle. We take this seriously as Christians because Jesus did. He links the two of them together. And so the question of do we sometimes love God to the exclusion of other people is actually an incorrect question. We cannot actually love God if we are excluding others at all or not loving each other or not loving others at all. Hopefully you know this one, but I want to, this is, this is important. It's a both hand or a neither. There's no loving God, but I won't love others today. Or I'll love others and I won't love God. They're the same. We tend to focus on one or the other, but it's a both hand. And we have to treat it like that. Second point, if you love someone, you love what they love. This is a picture of a crowd, just a random crowd off Google. Who in that crowd does God not love? Who in that crowd should we not love? These are rhetorical questions, but when it comes time to actually do something about it, what do we do? Now take the crowd and put it as someone who is protesting a policy which you enjoy, or protesting something you don't agree with, or living some sort of life which you disagree with, or some, in essence, put this crowd as someone who is obviously your enemy in a sense. The thing about loving others and reconciliation is that it sounds like a really good idea until you have to love an enemy and reconcile with someone you don't like. There is no one that you will ever meet that God does not love. And dare I say, and I fail all the time too, and this is something which we get by only on God's grace and mercy, but if we don't do our part to actively love them too, we are not loving God. And loving does not just mean 
lovey-dovey affection or simply giving them, it's a whole lot bigger and deeper than that. It's hard. It's involved. But it's our mission. If you love someone, you love what they love. There is no one on this planet that God does not love. Therefore, anyone and everyone who is behind every Facebook account, every Twitter handle, who is behind every counter, who is behind every riot sign, who is of every shade of human skin, it is our mission, our mandate to love, or we are not loving God. We say that, and I think we know that, but let that sink in. What does that really mean for us? What does that really mean for you? What does it really mean for me? And maybe does it make the question a little bit clearer earlier? Third out of four points. What God offers us, we must intentionally offer others. Now, we tend to look at this as far as the gift of evangelism, which is, yeah, yes, but not just what we tend to think of as the gospel. In, I've done it here in the North, and I just don't think it works very well, but I, I remember being a part, I'm not knocking these, being a part of door-knocking campaigns to where literally you would knock on someone's door and they would answer, and the first thing you ask them is, if you die tonight, do you know where you would go? And uh, for some people, they would slam the door in your face. Some people, they would give you a smart remark. Um, once in a great while, there would actually be someone who would actually engage with you and you could study with and, and everything like that. Um, I've tried it here, believe it or not. It doesn't, it doesn't work all that well. And I think it's because we don't take the full extent of this point seriously. Yes, we offer them the gospel, but do we also offer them a hearing? Do we offer them true day-to-day grace? Do we offer them attention? Do we offer them patience? Do we offer them, whoever them is, do you offer them relationship? Do we offer them fill in the blank. You see, not to be patronistic, but not just the church buzzwords of love and grace, but everything that God offers you and us. Patience, virtue, discipline, hope, attention. Everything that we offer each other, we owe everyone in this world And that's part of loving them. It doesn't mean we have to agree. It doesn't mean we have to condone. But this goes right back to the golden rule. If someone was looking at you at that very moment, whenever that moment was, how would you want to be treated? And last point, love others means. I'm going to put these four or five words back up here again. And this is kind of what this is all boiling down to. Covenant, affection, presence, advocacy, direction. These are the things we defined as what God's love is, that he not only gives us, but then we must give to him. Loving others then means, yes, we must have this 
the best we can when it comes to God. But do we take this just as seriously? Do we take these five elements just as seriously when it comes to others, regardless of who the others are? What does it mean to have a covenant with others? Because I, the last time I checked, I don't remember the last time I split an animal and walked through it and made a promise with somebody. What Jesus has. And by believing in him, being baptized in his name, and following him, we have made a covenant with him on behalf of everyone else. That, what? Not only with all of us who believe in him as well, that we will treat each other like Jesus, but we have made a covenant with God of how we will treat everyone else in this world. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. That's not just for Christians. That's not just for you. That's for everyone who's listening to you. Live humble lives. 1 Thessalonians and Peter and Timothy. Live lives worthy of imitation. Live lives that spread the gospel. Live lives that don't interfere or spurn people away. This is part of a covenant that we agreed to that applies not just with our behavior to ourselves and to God and to each other, but to all the rest of the world. Affection. It's amazing to me, and this is from person. This is anecdotal. Granted, um, it was a lot easier without masks. Obviously, Casey has talked about the whole uh, concept of smizing. That just sounds weird. It's just I, don't smize me. It just sounds odd. Smizing is the crinkle. You know, whenever you have your mask on. Whoa, sorry. How you are smiling with your eyes, or frowning with your eyes, or squinting with your eyes. This is a bit harder. But I've talked over and over and over about how just having a moment of true affection, and that doesn't mean that you take someone's hand and, or you kiss them or anything like that, but true affection simply means, hey, at this moment, I'm focusing on you, I'm liking you, and I'm giving you a good moment at the time. I've talked about at length how even 30 seconds at a grocery store counter in checkout, how you can change someone's entire day just by actually giving them 20 intentional seconds. That's part of the covenant. As part of being present. How many people, even today in the era of social distancing and masks and quarantine, how many people do we go by and go through this? And maybe even especially right now because of math, because of distancing, how many people go by you or you go by today and you barely notice them or didn't give them a moment's notice? Presence is not simply being intimate or involved with someone you like, but actually being present and aware in the moment from whoever you're around. Like I said, it was easier before masks, but it doesn't excuse it. Advocacy. How do you advocate for someone that you don't know or advocate for someone else you don't know well? It's easy to do theoretically when we know each other. What about the others that we don't know? You can still show them who God is. You can still show them what it means to be affectionate and present. And you can put in a word that can direct their day towards someone else. Either the world, Satan, or God. Do we take it seriously? Is my whole question. And these may be a little bit trite and simple. But do we take it seriously that the same aspects of God's love that he shows to us and we are to show back to him and we are to show to one another also are mandated <laughs> as to Christians to be shown to the rest of the world. 
And I would say, and this is blunt, but I think it's true, that if we don't take this seriously to everyone that we come in contact with the best we can, we're not truly loving God. Because Jesus put them that close. Now, we're going to mess up. Part of being human. And God did not set forth his plan to work through humans because we were going to be perfect. But Jesus also would not have become one of us <laughs> simply to excuse us. He, he came one of us to show us what it was like to be like him in this world. Jesus became like one of us so we could be like him in all ways, not just in the heavenly sense one day, but the here and now, bringing eternal life, bringing the eternal kingdom present. The inaugurated eschatology, I like saying that, it's fun to say. The inaugurated eschatology of bringing the future to the present now. Jesus brought the ultimate new creation into the present, and that's our job now. We do this, yes, by loving God in every way we can, but also by the intentional acts of using and being and loving God's love to everyone we come in contact with. The challenge for us is to be intentional about it. But I've said before in many sermons lately that God's will is only ever done by humans whether God works through them or in spite of them, but only ever done through humans who are focusing on God. That means us. There are people in this congregation who can relate the stories of people being godly, and that is what brought them to Christ. People being not spouting Bible verses and not calling out, being present, advocating, having the direction of their actions, being affectionate. The challenge for us in this day and age, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow sinners saved by grace, <laughs> is three things. One, to make sure that this, maybe more now than ever, is on the top of our hearts and minds when it comes to what it means to manifest in God's kingdom. But then, too, how to help each other do this as we walk through life. I am more and more convinced that church needs to be a place not just to come and learn, not just to come and sit there and consume, but be a place where we actually help each other do this. Not just to learn about it, but actually be a place where you can come and be encouraged. You can come and tell someone, man, I really blew it this week. That's okay. We'll be a place where we actually come and do, come and do kingdom work as kingdom citizens. Not just a place we come and consume some words or consume some fellowship, but be a place we're actually participating in. Be a place that we're emboldened in and be a place that we are encouraged and, and, and filled with energy to go out and do stuff together. That's the point of church. Because three, it's hard. It's hard to do this nowadays. It's hard to do this in this day and age. It's hard to do this over social media. It's hard to do. It's always been hard to do it. But it's our job. Brothers and sisters, the question I ask you today is, how do we manifest and how do we make real 
what Jesus said is most important. And it's most important not just because through our actions, through these actions, someone else may come to a knowledge of the truth and by one of us put their faith in Christ, put him on in baptism and begin a life of faith on their own. But through those actions of loving God and loving others, both just important is how God redeems the world. Heavenly Father, you've asked a lot of us. And with your power, we are able. With your grace, we are forgiven. With your mercy, we mess up and keep on going. With your love, we are transformed and pray that we spread that to anyone and everyone we come in contact with. God, it's a big big idea the fact that loving you and loving those around us in in real tangible ways it's scary it's a big deal it's a big thing we ask for your help in taking each step forward to that goal we ask for your power and your spirit to unite us to help each other fulfill what it means to not only love you, but be someone who truly loves the world as you love the world. We pray, God, that by your Spirit, we can be the people that people look at and go, I don't know what they're about, I don't know what they believe, but I know there's something different about them. I want to find out what it is for your glory, God. Help us to be people like Christ, who everywhere he went showed the love of God so tangibly, so obviously, and so perfectly. We're not perfect on our own. We are made perfect through your grace. And we pray, God, that you work through us for your spirit, for your kingdom, for your glory, and whatever that looks like. May we be your mouthpiece, your feet, your hands to play our part in your role through us for your world. We lift all these things up to you in your power, in your glory, in your son's name. Amen.